This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan, and welcome back to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to season five, we're on episode two already, um, and thank you so much for joining us again. Is it going to be New Year when everybody joins us, or is it not quite? Uh, not quite, okay. I think there's a day to go. Well, Happy New Year then, guys, for in a couple of days' time. <laughs> yeah, and we hope you had a nice Christmas as well, mm-hmm. we certainly did. So uh, before we get on with this week's episode, we would like to thank all of our new Patreon supporters. Uh, There's loads of you this week. We are so grateful. So uh, we have Tracy Snedden, Stee Reed, Ashton Treadgold, Laura Jane, Sean Parry, Neil Harris, Melissa McLaughlin, Claire Reed, Amanda Savida, Kerry Matthews, Pfizer Bashir, Erin Schola, Claire McDonald, Freya Bennett, Emmy, Jenna Shaw, and I'll let Bethan take over now. Yeah, and we've also got a group of people who have signed up for annual subscriptions as well. So thank you so much to Pamela Pryor, Mark Simpson, Joe Wood, Paul Vicarage, Mia Reynolds, Karen Hillier, Alison Moss, and Trisha Walker. And if you'd like to follow in these people's shoes, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and see what you've been missing. Thank you so much, everybody. The Olympic Games have existed since before records even began, but we have strong archaeological evidence to show that the Games originated in the ancient Greek city of Olympia around 3,000 years ago, making them by far the oldest sporting event in human history. Having survived the test of time with flying colours, today the Olympics is also one of the most globally celebrated sporting events in the world, with competitors from just about every nation on earth sending their best athletes to represent them on the world stage. One of the most magical and enchanting elements of the Olympic Games is its tendency to ignore the ugliness and negativity of global politics and to focus on the integrity of the Games instead. It's a bubble, a rare opportunity for individuals from all nations, regardless of their political biases towards one another, to put aside their differences, shake hands and compete on better terms for no other reason than their shared love of sport. Yeah, and that's what I really love about the Olympics. It's almost, it doesn't matter what's going on outside of it. People who are good at doing stuff like running or throwing things go and do what they're good at and then have a bit of a competition it's lovely isn't it it is and it is it really is that bubble isn't it because all of the crap that goes on in the political field outside of of the um, olympic grounds it just doesn't really mean anything when when the games commence and it, it is just a nice time to forget about all of that crap and and to focus on sport You do not even have to be a die-hard sports fan to recognise that this is a rare and beautiful thing in today's troubled world. 
Countless sporting legends have been born to the Olympics throughout the years. Jesse Owens, Roger Bannister, Michael Phelps, Mo Farah and Usain Bolt to name just a few. For many, many years, certainly throughout most of modern history, the Olympics has managed to maintain its ethos that political strife has no place there. And all contenders are not just encouraged, but expected to respect one another, as well as the integrity of the Games. For the most part, athletes from around the world have managed to do exactly that. The 1972 Olympic Games in Munich in Germany was no exception. Over 7,000 athletes from 121 countries descended upon the German city to celebrate the beauty of athletic competition and healthy rivalries at the very highest of levels. In fact, for the Germans, it was more important than it had ever been before. World War II and the atrocities committed against 6 million Jews at the hands of Nazi Germany were at that time still painfully fresh in most people's minds. The last time Germany had hosted the Olympic Games was in 1936. Adolf Hitler had personally shown up and he made an enormously grandiose spectacle of himself, turning the entire event into one big racist and political farce, using the Games to showcase the superiority of the Aryan race to the rest of the world. It was an ugly memory, a dark stain that tainted the country's history, and the Germans were eager to scrub it off and to move on. They wanted to make amends with the rest of the world and build a new reputation for themselves. A reputation for peace, love and acceptance. When they successfully won their bid to host the 72 Olympic Games in Munich, no expense was spared. The Germans set out to make the Games one of the best the world had ever seen. They even dubbed the 1972 Munich Olympics as the Olympics of Peace and Joy. Even more important to the Germans was the fact that Israel had unexpectedly decided to take part in the Games. That must have been so huge as well, like what a, what a like gesture. And a lot of pressure for Germany to get it right. So this was a big surprise to the rest of the world, but it was a particularly massive deal for the Germans because it was an international and public statement by the Israelis that they were finally ready to forgive the Germans and move towards a more peaceful future. For the first few days at least, the games were going amazingly well. The American swimmer Mark Spitz smashed records by winning an amazing seven gold medals and the USSR destroyed the Americans on the basketball court in what is still considered to be one of the most unexpected sporting upsets in Olympic history. World records were being broken and memories were being made. It really was a roaring success. But sadly, the fun did not last. Through nothing more than sheer bad luck for the Germans, the ugliness of global politics and the harmonious spirit of the Munich Olympic Games collided in the most catastrophic way imaginable. The result was an appallingly violent incident that stunned the rest of the world and resulted in multiple fatalities. To understand what happened is straightforward, but it's also very important that we understand why it happened to begin with. And to do that, we need to go back a little bit. But before we do that, let's hear from the first of today's show sponsors. So I just wanted to make it clear at this point, unlike some other shows, one that I could really name that Bethan will know, uh, we don't use this platform to throw around our own political views. We don't have any kind of hidden agenda. 
Any views expressed here are solely for storytelling purposes and they don't necessarily reflect the views or opinions of either me, Bethan or any other persons involved in the production of our episodes. The State of Israel has been an internationally recognised independent nation since 1964, but literally since day one it has been marred by some of the most violent and bloody conflict ever seen since World War II. Situated on the sun-drenched Mediterranean coastline of the Middle East, it is the only democratic state in that region, and to say that Israel doesn't get along with its neighbours would be a huge understatement. They have been at war with literally every bordering country at some point or another during their relatively short political lifespan. However, none of Israel's neighbourly disputes have lasted as long, or produced more death and suffering on both sides, as their bitter and ongoing feud with the state of Palestine a small, divided territory which claims that the land that the Israelis now inhabit was stolen from them illegally. They have subsequently vowed to bring about the destruction of Israel and the liberation of their land by any means necessary. Throughout the years, Israel has earned itself a reputation for resorting to alarming levels of aggression against their Palestinian enemies, and many have gone as far to accuse Israel of war crimes against the Palestinians including genocide, apartheid and the unlawful confiscation of Palestinian territory. Israel has always rejected such claims, insisting that military offensives are necessary to protect its people from Palestinian attacks, but that they always act within the appropriate rules of engagement. To put this in simple terms, the Palestinians and the Israelis despise each other because they both have a religious and political claim to the same land. Israel have the strong upper hand because they are backed by the military prowess of the USA and as a result they have a far superior military advantage of their own. In 1964, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat formed the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organisation, a political and militant group whose sole purpose was the liberation of Palestine through armed struggle, with much of its violence specifically aimed at Israeli civilians who, as they saw it, were illegally living and thriving on land that did not belong to them. The PLO made themselves visible on the world stage by campaigning publicly for the liberation of Palestine, but they needed to make their voices even louder. They wanted to aggressively demand that the world pay attention to their struggle, so they sketched up plans to commit acts of terrorism against their enemies, including hijacking passenger aircrafts and assassinating enemy leaders. To accomplish this, the PLO needed to form another faction, a smaller, more discreet cell of fanatical young men who were willing to get their hands dirty by committing acts of violent terrorism on behalf of the PLO. Out of this need, the terrorist splinter cell named Black September was created. So, back to the Munich Olympics. On the evening of Monday, September 4th in 1972, the athletes from the Israeli Olympic delegation enjoyed a night out in the town of Munich. After watching a live performance of Fiddler on the Roof, they enjoyed a lavish dinner, sampled a few famous German beers and then began heading back towards the Olympic Village. I think this is one of the things about the Olympics that always seems so crazy is like it's always, obviously it's like top, top athletes, but they always seem to be having like amazing nights out, going out drinking and like having parties and stuff. 
I do love that, though. I think, why not? Well, why not? Because they're at the Olympics, representing their country. You know we would. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, So as the team burst dropped them off outside the main gates of the Olympic Village, they cheerfully made their way inside and headed back to their accommodation to get some sleep. They were all due to compete the following morning. However, what they did not know was that throughout the evening, a sinister group of individuals had been following them and the Israeli athletes were all being closely watched. At 4.30am local time on the 5th of September, as the Israeli athletes slept, eight tracksuit-clad members of Black September, carrying duffel bags loaded with AK-47 rifles, pistols and grenades, emerged from the shadows and approached the two-metre-high chain-link perimeter fence and began looking for a way in. Oh my god, that is absolutely terrifying. Isn't it, to picture that? As the armed group prowled the area, they were spotted by a few members of the Canadian Olympic team who had also returned from a night out on the town and innocently assumed that the Arab-looking men in tracksuits were just athletes who had gotten locked out of the village. Oh no. I know. Not suspecting anything, the Canadians jovially helped the Black September terrorists to climb over the fence and even helped throw the duffel bags over the fence as well, not knowing that the bags contained a small arsenal of guns and explosives. When all men had successfully scaled the fence, the Canadians wished them a good evening and went about their business. Oh my God, you'd feel so guilty afterwards. Absolutely, yeah, because there was a lot of security uh, around this Olympic village, so really high fences, and um, and yeah, they were just allowed to climb over the fence and they were assisted. The terrorists, however, moved on to the next stage of their plan. Two of the eight terrorists were already familiar with the Munich Olympic village. During the group's meticulous planning of the operation, the two men had successfully gained employment with the construction firm that had been contracted to the Olympic Committee to build the temporary accommodation units for the athletes. Consequently, they knew exactly where their targets were staying, and they led the group to the temporary apartment complex at 31 Connolly Straub. Once inside the complex, the group used a set of stolen keys to enter two apartment blocks that were being used by the Israeli Olympic team. Inside the apartment, the Israeli athletes were fast asleep. Yosef Gutfreund, a wrestling referee, was awakened by a strange scratching noise at the door of apartment one, which accommodated the Israeli coach and officials. Feeling that something was off, he went to take a look. As he approached, he saw the door begin to open and through the gap he was absolutely horrified to see several masked men with guns on the other side. Yosef instinctively threw his 135kg body weight as hard as he could against the door in a futile attempt to stop the intruders from forcing their way in. He also loudly screamed a warning to the rest of the apartment's occupants that they were under attack. Wow, what a legend. Absolutely, yeah. Although this didn't stop the intruders from gaining entry, Yosef's actions gave his roommate, weightlifting coach Tuvia Sokolovsky, enough time to smash a window and to escape. The other occupant of the apartment, wrestling coach Mosh Weinberg, rushed to help Yosef to fight off the intruders. After a brief struggle, Yosef was overpowered and subdued. Mosh continued to fight back and was subsequently shot in the face. The bullet travelled through his cheek and exited out the other side, leaving him still alive and standing, but severely injured and in extreme pain. 
He was then subdued by the attackers and forced to help them to find more hostages. Even at gunpoint, Mosh defiantly led the terrorist group right past apartment 2 and lied by telling them that the residents of that apartment were not Israelis. Instead, he led them to apartment number 3, where the gunman captured six heavyweight wrestlers and weightlifters as additional hostages. And it is believed that Mosh had led the terrorists to apartment 3 specifically because he hoped that the physically stronger men inside that apartment would have a better chance of fighting off the attackers than those in apartment two. So again, that was an amazing thing for him. For, for It's a good do. shout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, all of the men in apartment three were deeply asleep when the terrorists entered and the intruders had no problem at all in subduing them. As the athletes from apartment three were marched at gunpoint back to join the other hostages in apartment one, Mosh again turned and attacked the gunman and another fight ensued. The ensuing brawl allowed one of the wrestlers, Gad Sabari, enough time to escape through a window and then slip away through the underground parking garage where he could eventually raise the alarm. Fighting for his own life and the lives of his friends, Mosh fiercely knocked out one of the intruders with a savage punch to the head. He then picked up a fruit knife and began to wildly slash at another. Weightlifter Yosef Romano, a former Israeli soldier, also took his chances and attacked one of the intruders. Mosh and Yosef fought courageously, but they never stood a chance against their opponent's superior firepower. They were both shot dead, and their blood-soaked, bullet-ridden bodies were dumped next to the nine surviving hostages in apartment one to serve as a grim warning of what would happen to them if anyone tried to be a hero. This is absolutely horrendous it's a stuff of nightmares isn't it to imagine yourself in that in the middle of the night representing your country at the olympics a really proud moment for you um, and for your family and your friends and it's the middle of the night you're asleep and you're woken by eight masked gunmen and marched into a room and two people are shot and killed and their bodies dragged in front of you it's just you you literally are going to be thinking i'm next Yosef Gutfreund, the weightlifter who had tried to prevent the terrorists from gaining entry into apartment one, was physically the largest of the hostages, so the terrorists tied him to a chair. The rest were lined up four apiece and bound at the wrists and ankles, and then to each other, back to back. The terrorists' deeply rooted hatred towards their Jewish hostages was extremely apparent from the start. They were severely heavy-handed and abusive towards their prisoners, and several of the hostages were savagely beaten during their ordeal, with some even suffering from multiple broken bones as a result. At one point, for no reason other than sheer callousness, a terrorist approached the dead body of Yosef Romano and laughed as he castrated the man in full view of the horrified hostages. Oh my god, what I the know. fuck? It doesn't really get more sick than that. He's clearly just like drunk on power of like what's going on. It reminds me of the, I think it was Andrew Cunningham in, I think it was season three. He was a paedophile who was attacked by a vigilante mob and... Um, they cut off his testicles as well, but mm. I think he was still alive when they did it. The German authorities were soon made aware of this terrifying situation unfolding in 31 Colony Straub, and police rushed to the scene. After quickly establishing that they were indeed dealing with a hostage situation, police negotiators were called in, and through a half-opened window, they spoke with the leader of the terrorist group, 
a young man who called himself Issa. Issa's demands were simple. The immediate release of 234 Palestinians jailed in Israel. They vowed to execute all of the hostages if their demands were not met by noon that day and they threw the body of Mosh Weinberg out in front of the building to demonstrate that they were not screwing around. God, that's definitely making a statement, isn't it? It really is. Israel's controversial response to the terrorist demands came quickly. Fuck you. We will not negotiate. Israel's general attitude towards hostage-taking at the time was that any negotiation with terrorists would only serve as added incentive for further attacks, and so they made it their official policy to refuse to engage with them under any circumstances. Instead, Israel reached out to the German government and offered to send their own special forces to Munich to help the German police plan and execute a daring rescue mission on the apartment complex. For reasons that are still unclear, the Germans declined this offer. For Israel, the situation was pretty much open and shut. But for the Germans, it was a moral and political nightmare. Nazi Germany had claimed the lives of 6 million Jews barely 30 years hence, and it was still in living memory for most people at this time. Germany had worked so hard to make amends with the rest of the world, and after 20 years, the deep wounds had only just begun to mend. Now, once again, innocent Jews were being slaughtered on German soil, and the world was watching to see what they were going to do about it. Would the German government once again do nothing and allow the blood of the Jewish people to be spilled, or would they take measures to prevent it this time? German negotiators opened a line of dialogue with Issa and his Palestinian terrorists and they offered them an unlimited amount of money and safe passage out of Germany in exchange for the safe release of the surviving athletes. As a possible alternative, they also offered to trade the Israeli hostages for several willing high-ranking German government officials. However, Issa refused both offers and stuck to his original demands, ominously stating, Money means nothing to us. Our lives mean nothing to us. And that's when you know someone's, if they've got nothing to lose, not even, like, they're even willing to die for their cause. Yeah. Like, that is terrifying. Yeah, this is a kamikaze mission for them. They're happy to give up their own life to, to make their point and to, to get their way. With zero willingness from the Israelis to negotiate with the terrorists and Issa staunchly refusing to give an inch, the Germans were faced with only one other option. They had to rescue the hostages at any cost. The first course of action for the Germans was to try to convince the terrorists that their demands were at least being considered by the Israelis, but that more time was needed to make such a large-scale exchange of prisoners happen. Surprisingly, the terrorists readily agreed to extend the deadline, giving the Germans precious time that they needed to plan their next move. Elsewhere, as the lives of nine innocent men hung in the balance just metres away, the International Olympics Committee made the controversial decision to allow the Games to continue in the absence of the Israeli athletes. Wow. Isn't that mad that they... I guess How it, can you continue playing, like, doing more sports, though? Like, I couldn't keep going if I knew what was going on behind me. No. I just, I think it's really bad taste, but I think it was one of those snap decisions that somebody high up just took, and I'm sure it was the wrong decision. I'm sure everybody would agree with that, but 
Um, but yeah, it was in very poor I can kind of taste. understand why you'd be a bit like, let's just keep going to not make more of a scene, but it's just weird to me. Yeah. It took a lot of intense pressure from both the police and the media until the IOC decided to suspend the games, albeit only temporarily. So it was a, a, a temporary suspension, but that took some time to negotiate. After lengthy discussions between top-tier German government officials and military top brass, the Germans decided to decline Israel's offer of military support and instead put together their own rescue plan. At 4.30pm, a squad of 38 German police officers was sent to the Olympic village. They dressed in Olympic sweatsuits to create the illusion that they were regular Olympic athletes, but they were discreetly armed with Walter MP submachine guns. But this was a far cry from the elite Special Forces personnel that Israel had offered to send over. The members of the German rescue squad were nothing more than regular German police officers, with little or no experience in armed combat or hostage rescue. Their plan was simple, they would hide on the roof of 31 Colony Straub. Then, upon hearing the code word sunshine over their radios, they would crawl down from the ventilation shafts, take out the terrorists and liberate the hostages. In what was later described as an appalling oversight by the Germans, the police seemingly failed to consider the myriad of camera crews filming the actions of the officers from the neighbouring German apartments, which were being broadcast live on television. So naturally, the terrorists were able to watch the police taking up position and preparing to attack them in real time, which is is farcical, isn't it? Oh, for God's sake, that's so ridiculous. Or at least get some kind of media blackout if you're going to plan something like that. Before the assault even had a chance to begin, an enraged Issa emerged at the window and threatened to kill two hostages right there and then unless the police backed off immediately. With their element of surprise now out of the window, the embarrassed rescue team were forced to abandon the mission and to retreat. Forced to start over, the Germans decided that their next best option was to somehow coerce the terrorists into leaving the Olympic village, away from the media feeds and the activity of the games, thus making them more vulnerable to a surprise ambush. This was exacerbated by the heads of the Olympic Committee who, somewhat insensitively, were putting a lot of pressure on police to hurry up and resolve the issue so that the games could continue with no further inconveniences. Oh my god, I was expecting that it would just be completely put on hold until next year. Yeah, that's it. You could have, because it's every four years, they could have have just delayed it and done it later that year. Yeah. Everything would have still been there ready. Negotiators had earlier reported back to German police that they had observed four or five attackers inside the apartment. Fatefully, these numbers were accepted as definitive. This will be important later. As the negotiators kept pressing Issa for a peaceful resolution, it was suggested that the terrorists would be much better off taking their hostages out of Germany and flying to an Arab country, on the agreement that strict guarantees for their safety were made by the terrorists, the Germans and the government of whichever nation they landed in. After some careful consideration, Issa added a new item to their demands. Safe transportation to Egypt. This lifted the pressure from the Germans tremendously, but it also faced them with yet another impossible dilemma. 
They could easily allow the terrorists to leave Germany along with the hostages and allow the responsibility to pass to the Egyptian government. However, the consequences of doing this would be the inevitable international criticism that once again, Jews were attacked on German soil and the government did nothing to save them. The other option and potential advantage was that another rescue attempt was now possible. So before we get to that, let's have a word from our second show sponsor. The problem with attempting another rescue mission, however, was that it was becoming increasingly clear to everyone involved that the German police were woefully incapable of pulling it off. With Israel still refusing to take part in the negotiations and the terrorist deadline getting closer, the Germans reluctantly agreed to have them safely transported to the nearest airport where a private plane and two commercial airline pilots would be waiting for them on the airstrip. The terrorists and hostages were to make their way to the waiting helicopters by exiting the apartment complex via the underground car park. The German police did briefly consider ambushing the terrorist group as they were leaving, as there were many blind spots in the underground car park for police snipers to lay in wait. However, the Germans had already showed their hand after their earlier failed attack. Issa anticipated that the police might try again, so he sent other members of the terrorist group ahead to act as scouts. This once again forced the police to abandon their ambush positions and pull back, and the terrorists had no issues as they loaded their human cargo onto the two awaiting military helicopters, which promptly took off and began flying towards Fustenfeldbruck, a NATO airbase. Time was rapidly running out for the German police, so they decided that they were going to attempt one last ambush on the terrorist group rather than allow them to leave the country with the hostages. This is so crazy. It's like listening to a film or something. I can't believe I didn't know about what had happened at this time. Like, this is absolutely mental. Yeah, and it's all—it's like it's almost like if we were just sat in your living room planning an ambush, isn't it? Like, it's just so half-arsed. And... What, the police side of things? Yeah. Yeah. Because the terrorists have really thought about everything, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, they, they totally have. They're doing an amazing job. but Yeah, it's really, really crazy. It really is. As the helicopters approached the airbase, five German policemen were deployed around the airport to act as snipers. Three on the roof of the control tower, one hidden behind a parked truck, and one behind a small signal tower. However, once again, the men were only regular German police officers. They had no special sniper training or experience whatsoever. To make matters even worse, their weapons were ordinary battle rifles, hastily borrowed from the German armed forces, and they lacked any kind of optics or night vision devices that were required. This was later described as yet another appalling example of how woefully unprepared the German police were for this kind of scenario. A Boeing 727 jet was positioned on the runway, with 16 German police inside, disguised as crew. The Germans anticipated that Issa and possibly another terrorist would inspect the plane first. The plan was that the undercover police on board would overpower and arrest them, giving the so-called snipers a chance to pick off the remaining two or three terrorists at the helicopters. The entire plan was based on what police negotiators had earlier reported to have seen inside Connolly's Straub, that there were only four or five attackers. However, as the rescue team anxiously waited for the helicopters to land, they reviewed new intel that there were in fact eight terrorists heading their way. I think what terrifies me as well is, I, I don't know if I'm just being ridiculous now, but like, how would you know... 
Oh no, of course you'd know who terrorists were and who were the hostages. I was just thinking like, what if they had like one of the terrorists pretended to be a hostage and was tied up or something? Like, mm. it just freaks me out. Like, these German police have no real training in all no. of this. What if they did something like that as well? But I think I am thinking too much like a film now, but it's just terrifying. Yeah, I don't know, because I think it's um, what we come on to in a short while is um, the most tragic part of of this whole story. So, um, so yeah, hold that thought. So, um, as, as, I, as I said, rather than it being four or five terrorists, it was more like eight. And even though it was only a minor development on what they already knew, the members of the rescue team completely lost their nerve and began to freak out. The police on the plane held an impromptu meeting right there in the cabin and unanimously voted to abandon the mission altogether, without consulting their commanding officers or even the snipers first. The commanding officers who were stationed in a control tower observing the entire mission could only watch helplessly as the German police left the plane and ran away, essentially destroying any hope they had of mission success. Can you believe that? Like, literally. I mean, I get it. I do understand. I think I would call them cowards if it wasn't for the fact that they didn't really sign up for this. They weren't trained for it. They didn't have the right equipment to take out the terrorists. So I don't necessarily blame them for running away. But it's still it's still a sight to behold, isn't it, in your mind's eye? It's just great. I just mm, my mind is blown by this whole whole thing. Yeah. And I like you said, I get it. Like, I think I'd yeah. be that much of a wimp as well. But it's just mad. So after the police had ran from the plane and ran away, the helicopters landed shortly afterwards at just after 10.30pm. As expected, Issa and one other terrorist walked over to inspect the plane, but of course they found it empty. Issa must have immediately figured out that the plane was a trap, and he was soon observed sprinting back towards the helicopters, shouting and waving his arms at his fellow terrorists. Out of pure desperation, the police decided to proceed with the ambush anyway, and they ordered the snipers to open fire and take out as many of the terrorists as possible. The first sniper to take a shot tried to kill Issa, but due to the bad light and shoddy equipment, he missed. The terrorists then promptly took cover and engaged the police and returned fire. All hell broke loose. In the ensuing fierce gun battle, two terrorists and one of the snipers in the control tower were killed by the gunfire. The helicopter pilots fled the scene unharmed, but the hostages were still tied up inside the helicopters and they couldn't get away. The remaining four police snipers continued to take shots at the terrorist group, who were now taking cover and returning fire often. This exchange lasted for almost an hour. As time went on, police reinforcements began to arrive on the scene, including several armoured vehicles. It is believed that this development made the terrorists feel that they were about to lose, and they may have panicked at the prospect of failing in their mission. At four minutes past midnight on the 6th of September, Issa turned on the hostages in one of the helicopters and opened fire at them with a Kalashnikov assault rifle. He then tossed a grenade into the cockpit, creating an explosion that destroyed the helicopter and incinerated the hostages inside. Issa then went full kamikaze and sprinted across the tarmac, firing at the police who then shot him in the head. He died instantly. 
Another terrorist also ran across a tarmac trying to escape and was also killed by one of the snipers. What happened to the remaining hostages is still disputed, but it is widely believed that one of the surviving terrorists stood at the door of the second helicopter and killed the remaining five hostages with a machine gun before being shot himself. Three of the remaining terrorists lay wounded on the ground with non-lethal gunshot wounds. Another managed to use the chaos to escape the scene almost completely, but he was soon tracked down with police dogs and cornered 40 minutes later. Refusing to surrender, he was shot dead after a brief gunfight. By around 1.30am, the battle was over. The media had earlier swarmed around the fencing of the NATO airbase, and from a long distance away reported on several big explosions and an ongoing gun battle. Bizarrely, one journalist on the scene falsely reported that all of the hostages had been saved and all terrorists had been killed. This bogus story quickly spread throughout the world's media, and the concerned friends and families of the hostages back in Israel rejoiced and celebrated, wrongly thinking that their loved ones had survived. Oh my god, what an absolute asshole! Like, how can you report something so wrong? I mean, what a fucking shit show. As if it's horrific, not horrific enough already, they then have false reports and they have that um, enormous relief that their loved ones are, are safe. Not long after this, however, the grim truth emerged. News anchor Jim McKay, who was covering the Olympics that year for the American Broadcasting Company, had taken on the job of reporting the unfolding events in Munich. At 3.24am, McKay received the official and final confirmation through his earpiece. Addressing the world in real time, he said, We've just got the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, Our greatest hopes and our worst fears are seldom realised. Our worst fears have been realised tonight. They have now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. Can you imagine that, having the job of of breaking that news? In the immediate aftermath of the massacre, the media, the Israeli government and the international community were quick to pour intense and scathing criticism on Germany's incredibly incompetent handling of the situation. The three surviving Black September terrorists had been arrested after the airport gunfight and were remanded in custody in a Munich prison as they awaited trial. However, that very same year, on the 29th of October, other Black September terrorists hijacked a Lufthansa Flight 615 and threatened to blow it up if the Munich attackers were not released immediately. With almost no hesitation whatsoever, the German government promptly released the three captured terrorists who all returned to their home country as heroes. Isn't that just shocking? Wow, that is so shocking. They probably just thought it's not even worth the flight this time. Like, there's loads of innocent people on that flight. Yeah, I think... We're just going to have to do it. I think the Germans were damned if Mm. they did, damned if they don't, so... I think so too. I would hate to have made that decision. One of the released terrorists was later identified as Abu Daud. In a TV interview that took place some years later, referring to his involvement in the Munich massacre, Daud said, I regret nothing. You can only dream that I would apologise. 
Subsequent international investigations into the Lufthansa Flight 615 incident have produced multiple accusations of a secret agreement between the German government and the PLO to release the surviving Black September terrorists in exchange for assurances of no further attacks on German soil. However, the German government has vehemently denied that, but that wouldn't surprise me. The Israelis were enraged by the attacks against their athletes, not to mention the Germans' all-round failure to protect them or even serve justice to the perpetrators. This seriously damaged many years of progress that the two nations had made since the war. In retaliation for the attacks, the Israeli Mossad, the secret service division, launched Operation Wrath of God a covert revenge mission to track down and assassinate all of the individuals who had allegedly planned or financed the Munich massacre. The mission lasted for years and resulted in several key members of Black September and the PLO being hunted down and killed. And there's actually a really um, a brilliant movie about this called Munich, which stars Eric Banner. So, oh, I do like Eric Banner. Yeah, if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth a watch. Black September no longer exists as a terrorist organisation, thankfully. After being severely damaged by Israeli revenge attacks, it is believed that the group disbanded sometime around September 73. The following year, in 1974, the PLO agreed to withdraw from acts of violence outside the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and Israel. Israel and Palestine remain at odds with one another in the politically complex mess that is the modern-day Middle East. Whilst many remain optimistic for a peaceful outcome one day in the future, when looking back at events like this, one can be forgiven for having doubts. Yeah, I think this is the thing. People um, have very long memories, especially when it's things like this. And you're not going to forgive or forget any time soon. No, I think I think whilst a lot of people might not be familiar with the events of the Munich massacre I think most of us will have heard of it and this is this is an event that happened nearly 50 years ago so it has very much gone down in history and um, I think it will still be talked about in decades to come and I think it's uh, it's going to be very difficult for parties on both sides to forgive and, and move on sadly. No I completely agree. Thank you so much for that Max that was a really really interesting episode. Yeah, very very different for us, I think, because we've we've ventured into the political sphere, uh, which I don't like to do because um, I'm not I'm no expert. So, um, but yeah, hopefully um, hopefully you found it interesting. Um, please check out our show sponsors. So we've got lostock.com/red and also harrys.com/red. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, then please do check us out at patreon.com/seeingredpodcast. Join us on all the usual social medias to come and discuss this week's episode and any other areas of true crime that you find interesting. Until next time, we will see you then. Bye. Bye.